HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's it's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meat and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meat and 3 drops. to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Today's episode will be the first of a two-part series exploring the politics and current state and culture of professional urban foraging in New York City, or the larger Northeast. Mallory O'Donnell works for a landscaping company by day, while, like many other professional urban foragers, documents his hashtag wild food projects online by night. He's not alone. The hashtag how to cook a weed has over a thousand related posts and the aforementioned wild food has over 223,000. Why has this desire to return to our roots become so popular in recent years? Mallory is here to help me weed through all the tough questions. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with where you're from, what your day job looks like and how it discourages or encourages your pursuit of the hashtag seasonal af. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it definitely both encourages and discourages. It's a very frustrating balance because uh, the seasonality of the work is exactly the same as the seasonality of foraging. So when I'm interested in 
when things emerge in the spring or when things get really abundant in the fall and it's harvest season, that's right in time with our heaviest work seasons. When there's a lull in the summer, there's also a lull in the work. And then in the winter, we do very little. And of course, there's very little going on. So it is directly correlated, which at times is very frustrating, but then at times it becomes an opportunity. Um, I worked with uh, our maintenance crew doing lawn mowing, lawn maintenance, uh, something I really kind of have a, almost a moral repulsion about. <laughs> um, I think grow food, not lawns, you know, grow weeds, not lawns. But, uh, but you know, it's work that we have to do to keep the company going. And um, I, went, I spent a Monday with them, and I think I collected more wild food in that day just accompanying that crew from things that people are that are appearing on people's lawns or that are neglected in their gardens or they're abandoned in their fields or whatever um that's really where i think um you know to encourage people to use the abundance of nature it, it, i always try to let people know it's really not about going into the woods it's really not about any of that it's about what's already right around you that you might be overlooking uh, a lot of the most common edible plants are like garden opportunists they're agricultural weeds um, that's where a lot of our nutrition comes from dandelions purslane lambs quarters all i can't find that stuff in the woods it's it's in your garden and in my garden luckily and i let it encourage it and i think that's maybe what uh, to get people on that page is a little bit of what i'm trying to do have you find that the uh, the people whose lawns you're mowing are receptive when you tell them about these weeds that are growing on their lawns? It's a bit of a mix. There's definitely <laughs> some people that look at me like I'm slightly bizarre. Um, <laughs> but uh, but a lot of people actually, um, if you uh, if you approach them in the right way, I think even people that sort of have too much, I mean, I hate to say that, but have have more money than they need to be worrying about things like picking weeds might become more interested in them especially when you talk about nutrition um and also the fact that you know that this is sort of they're sort of doing their own garden a service you know when you uh in the spring for me uh, the best time of year in the spring is like when you go out there and you go oh i've got to weed the garden so i can put some plants in and then you go wait a minute i have to pull up all these dandelion roots they're at the perfect stage to pull them up to use them for coffee or to make a, a seasoning salt or whatever wild carrots oh the the wild carrots are all here oh they're at the perfect time to use them and and to create something from them that it, when you go to weed them that's the best time to eat them usually so it, it kind of dovetails i guess uh, a little bit mm -hmm. so what were some of the formative moments uh for you in deciding to return to your roots or what piqued your interest in cooking with weeds um, I, I was obsessed for a while with ingredients. Uh, I lived in Houston, Texas, which is an extremely diverse city. And I was really always into um, cooking with different ethnic ingredients. Like I would be the person, you know, going to the Indian market, going to the Asian market, going to little Saigons in Houston, which I think there's three or four, um, and discovering these ingredients and going, wow, this is really interesting. Oh, this has such a crazy fragrance. Let me play with it a little bit. And then in my youth, I had done a little bit with wild food. I mean, my mom had shown me, you know, that wine berries were okay to eat. Uh, she comes from a Southern tradition where there's a little bit of a wild food. You know, when she was a little girl, she had to go out and pick pokeweed. Um, 
so I kind of had a little bit of that, but mostly when I moved back into this area, 2011, uh, from Houston, and I, I had I, I had exhausted the catalog of foreign ingredients, or not exhausted it, but I'd really been stimulated by it. And then I came back here, and I went, oh, I'm in New Jersey now. I can't, you know, I can get pork roll, but I can't get, you know, uh, uh, rau or, you know, uh, uh, rice patty herb. Um, so I started kind of being more interested in what was just happening around me uh, and returning to that. Because I also, I understood the environment better. When I was in Texas, it was very foreign to me. I didn't, I knew what figs were. I knew we had figs. That was great. But I didn't know the, I wasn't as comfortable with the common weeds and things like that. So it was returning here. And then I got a friend of mine walked me in my backyard and uh, he's more of an outdoorsman, kind of a crafty uh, you know, more of a, a wild crafter. Like he, he, he's, you know, really good with cordage and things like that, but he did know some edible plants and he pointed out all the things that were in my backyard that were edible. And I went, Oh yeah, I forgot about all this. This is amazing. Like, let me start playing with this. And so I started experimenting with it and kind of springboarded from there. But, and that's why I sort of tell people start with your backyard. That's the best place to go because it's also right there. You can go and you can look at the same plant you can watch it grow. If you let a little space of your yard go wild, see what happens in it, you can identify the plants as they start to flower, you know, uh, rather than always going to a different location or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned this one friend of yours that's more of like a craftsman, forager kind of uh, figure. And so there we, I, along with many of my listeners, understand that there are multiple types of foragers. So can you kind of give a breakdown of like the, the landscape um, what the different stereotypes are and how to distinguish between them. Wow. I don't know if I know what the different <laughs> stereotypes are. I mean, like, I, I mean, first of all, I'm not a professional forager. I don't make yeah, so money. So then uh, th that's yeah, also like a very buzz wordy thing. What, how do you become a professional forager? I don't know. I, 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 I don't think I would ever try to do it. I mean, I'm more interested in writing about wild food. Um, and um, and forming networks and, and educating and things like that. Like, um, I would much rather do a walk than than find something and bring it to a fancy restaurant. I mean, I work with one restaurant, and it's a very different kind of relationship from I think any one I've ever heard of a forager having. It's much more of a family kind of thing. We don't really ever talk about money. We, there's money exchanged, but it's more of a I don't know. It's different. It's a, a personal relationship. It's an individual relationship. I don't think I'll ever find a place like that. I don't know if I could sustain it if I did. I mean, I'm, I'm much more interested in uh, experimenting with recipes myself and with writing about them. Um, but, uh, but there are people that make their living from this. The problem I think that I see in it as terms of sustainability is that, to be honest, everyone wants the same things. So if you're a professional forager, you're collecting the same five ingredients for this for 20 restaurants that they all want porcini, they all want ramps, they all want morels, they all want they don't want most of them don't want water pepper. Most of them don't want uh, you know, dandelions. I mean, and that's why I work with Honey Badger and Lefferts Gardens is because they want those things. They want invasive plants. They want obnoxious weeds that no one wants that they can experiment with and, and create nuanced, interesting flavors with them. They don't want, like, it's not about um, big ticket items. 
And that sort of was my always my barrier with the, the professional foraging world is that that seems to be the only thing people want. They're not interested in experimenting with the real rich range. Uh, and my particular real interest is the spices, the wild spices. And that's like a an area where most professional kitchens just sort of look at you like, what are you talking about? You can't get spices from the wild. Like, that's crazy. There's no black pepper substitute. Well, there's like three, you know? I'm, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. Um, but I don't think I've answered your question, which was more about the categories of, of forager. But um, I don't know. I don't... I want to sort of, I hope that we can go past that. And I'm definitely not in a part of any school of thought about it because I'm very self-taught. So I don't really have a, um, I don't have somebody I can point to and say, oh, this person is just like what I do. Um, but I, I think the best thing we can hope is that all these different groups, whatever they might be and however they might be described as, learn from each other. Like... I was really pleased to notice, uh, for instance, there's a, a professional forager named Evan, who I have a lot of respect for, a really good, very good soul, good person. Uh, and I noticed this year that he no longer will provide ramp bulbs. And he deals with a lot of restaurants. Uh, and I thought that was really cool because I felt like that was a response from something that more sustainable-minded foragers have been kind of saying for years, like, you can't keep digging up ramps, like, we're going to run out, you know. And in my area, there are no ramps, you know, I don't even, I've, I haven't dug a bulb of ramp in three or four years. There's just not any in my area. They're all gone, um, mostly because of invasive plants, but I think also because of overharvesting. Um, but I've been pleased to see that the professional community is responding to things that are movements within the sustainable foraging community. Um, and that, I think, is the future. The, the way forward is for us all to learn from each other and to um, to really make decisions based on what's best for not just our pocketbooks, but the the planet. Mm-hmm. And so you said um, there's a few ingredients like the porcinis, the chanterelles that everyone is really digging for. And so do you think that creates um, a culture of competition or do you think really, like you were saying in the very utopian way, that <laughs> it is a collaborative community? I mean, I think there's definitely going to be a lot of competition, but I don't, I, I don't really see it, but I know it must be there. Um, I guess I exist in a little bit of an ideological and also kind of a, in literally in a physical vacuum. I mean, I remember last year finding um, a uh, fallen tree with a clear slice of chicken of the woods that had been cut off of it. And I think that was the first time in three or four years I'd come across clear evidence of another person collecting wild food. I mean, that's sounds ridiculous, but... That's really the kind of environment I operate in. It's very uh, non-competitive because there's just no one doing it. Um, and in a way, that makes me sad. I, I would kind of rather see my spots get blown up every once in a while to know that someone else is appreciating things. Um, but I'm, I think, probably the exception. I think uh, from what I've seen that there's a, especially there's a, a, a cadre of male foragers who treat uh, mushroom spots in particular as though they were their own particular hunting ground. Um, 
And I don't think that's sustainable at all. If you get 20 people in the same suburb of Philadelphia that want to collect wild mushrooms from the state parks, they're going to run up against a problem really quick because there's two or three people that are there and just taking everything they can get their hands on. They're not leaving anything. Um, and I know that to be true, and it, it makes me a little bit sad. Um, I hope that maybe some of those people realize they're going to have to make room if they want this hobby or uh, vocation to expand a little bit. But. Yeah, you were careful to explicitly state that they were male foragers. Can you talk a bit about kind of like the male dominant foraging yeah. community and the recent write-ups about the kind of underrepresented female It's uh, really strange because women are the soul of this. This is a woman's a traditionally was the gathering aspect of hunting and gathering is generally traditionally thought of as being the the woman's aspect in terms of paleoanthropology and things like that. I don't 100% agree with that. I think there was a lot more crossover than we imagine. I think uh, probably primitive hunter-gatherer societies were more, maybe a little bit more diverse than we think they were because we tend to stratify everything and put it into these rigid roles, which I don't think is really very effective. I think it's a very modern way to look at it. We go, oh, well, they must have all, must have all been the men going out and doing the hunting. It must have all been the women you know, picking berries, and then the men nine times out of ten came home and they went, oh, yeah, we you should have seen this mammoth. It was this big, and we, we almost got him, and oh, but ooh, those berries look great. <laughs> you know, um, I think it was probably a little more complex than that. I think probably a lot of the men that were going out and hunting, and probably women that were going out and hunting, were also I mean, there's just, there's no sense in, you know, you walk past a big bush of hawthorn, you're gonna pick the hawthorns, you know, of course. But, um, so I think that's probably a simplistic way to look at things, but the contemporary foraging scene is definitely male-dominated. Like a lot of these hobby, outdoor hobby-based, I mean, we gotta call it a hobby, it kinda is. Nobody's really, very few people are making a living doing this, um, which is probably for the best. I think it would quickly escalate to a point of unsustainability if a lot of people were trying to make their living from the woods. Um, so then the people that we see on Instagram that are, <laughs> you know, with over like close to a million followers, right, posting about this and providing to restaurants, they're not making livings off of this? Oh, no, no, no. I think there's a handful of people. Okay. I mean, I, I would, I can't imagine there aren't. I mean, and I think there are people that, like Pascal Bedard is a good example. Like, he clearly forages for restaurants, but he also supplements his income by doing all the creative and interesting writing that he does and all and and putting out his books and also probably other things that you know teaching classes doing workshops you have to kind of hustle mm -hmm. um but yeah it is predominantly men and i think that's kind of a, it's kind of weird to me because it doesn't to me it doesn't fit the it doesn't fit the interest and it doesn't fit the knowledge and what i really find in terms of if you'll allow me to digress a little bit in terms of the sort of um uh, hyper masculinity stereotypes I, in the plant world I don't find I don't find as much of this but in the mushroom world there is a tremendous amount of sexism going on um, I know many female mycologists who I would consider th just the most savvy intelligent mushroom people I know and they've all told me you know, in mushroom clubs, in mycological groups, in seminars, in meetings, in conferences, in anything they've been to, they come up against this sort of like, well, what could you possibly know about that? And it is, it's these older, bearded, bespectacled hippies, gentlemen that uh, 
that are mycologists, but they're and they're good at what they do, but they they really are very stuck in this idea of it being a boys' club. Um, I I can't every woman I can think of who's a really superior mycologist, and there's a ton of them. Um, they all have told me about this when I've talked to them about it because it's something I started to sort of. It's very different from the plant world. I think plants are sort of. There's a different perspective. Maybe we don't have that kind of uh, entrenched idea, or maybe they're thought of as more of a woman's thing, which in and of itself is very silly too, but um, the whole thing is very silly. <laughs> you know, I don't think we should have any gender stereotypes. They're plants, they're, they're mushrooms, they're, it's nature. Like, we should be as diverse as possible in, our, uh, in who we are learning about this from. But, um, but I've, I've just heard from so many women about this boys club that they've come up against, and... I've definitely seen it, you know, it's, and it seems to be really in the mushroom hunting world. Um, I think that's it. I think it's the, I think that they, you let them get the word hunting in there and they just got all, <laughs> they got all excited. <laughs> the women can gather the mushrooms, but yeah, the they men can't have hunt to hunt them. the mushrooms. They can't hunt yeah. them. So not only is there this gender divide, but I even think there's this like classist divide in who gets to forage and who gets to hold the keys to <laughs> the kingdom. And why is that? I always thought this was so silly. Like when um, our good friend Sana took me on a walk. Yeah. I even was so intimidated. It was like, oh no, you know, like I don't know how to pick weeds and we no, run around no, and it's, it's just stuff on the ground. It's, but yeah. why is it kept under wraps and why is it appear so Boy, mysterious I, for most people? I don't try to keep it under wraps. I mean, I try to share everything that I've learned. I mean, people, it's good. Uh, I remember doing an interview with someone and they go, you have 12 million posts. And I go, yeah, but it's because I'm posting the same thing every year so people see oh, wait, July 4th, that's when this thing starts to flower. It's a learning exercise. That's, you know, the, the repetition of the same plants and the same mushrooms over seasons, you start to learn their seasonality. That's how you learn them. You learn them because you repeat observation and you sustain observation. I don't know why um, it would be a closely held uh, piece of knowledge. Uh, I've always been in favor of sharing it as much as possible. Um, I don't want to hold on to this information. I can't hold on to this information. There's so much of it that I want to share it, that I want to show people. And I know that a part of me is very afraid of what would happen if we lost all this knowledge because um, it's very easy to go to the supermarket. It's not that easy to go out into your backyard with a, you know, a the uva's weeds of the northeast and flip through it and go maybe this is that maybe no no it's not hairy uh, no it's it's not a yellow flower it's a purple flower can't be that no the stem's not square that's complicated but i don't think it's at, so complicated that it's unavailable uh, i just think that we need more teachers and we need more people putting the information out there and i agree with you there's a classes thing going on and it's sort of weird because the people with the most knowledge about edible plants are all poor. They are all working class people or poor people. And in this country, they are 97% of them are immigrants. Uh, you go to Central Park and you see people foraging. It's not white people. It's Asian Americans. They're, they know the stuff. They're out there collecting ginkgo nuts. You know, and white people look at them going like, oh God, why are you, they stink so bad. And it's like, no, they're amazing. They're delicious and they're nutritious, you know, nutritional powerhouse and they're, collecting them because this is part of their culture 
And in Appalachia, you know, it's poor white people. They know that they still have the foraging skills. My, my mother's family, you know, Southern family, you know, grew up picking pokeweed, grew up, you know, gathering wild berries, you know, picking pawpaws. My mom taught me the song, the pawpaw song. Picking up pawpaws, putting in your pocket. <laughs> and I, don't, I can't see a pawpaw in the Northeast, but uh, <laughs> but you can still sing the song. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's who has the knowledge. That's who has the skill set is, is working class people, poor people. Those are the people that we need to be bringing their knowledge to these, you know, I guess that you, what you're saying is sort of there is the urban elite that's a more upper crust that are going, oh, we're going to go source some local food <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh but they should have that skill set too we should all have that skill set everybody should and everybody should share their information about it. there's no reason to keep it a secret i don't think i answered your question i'm gonna say that a lot no i think i think <laughs> this is a perfect time to take a break because yeah. i think this opens up a ton more questions so we'll Good. be right back after a short Thank break you. <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-aged cheeses, Der Scharfe Max, Appenzeller, Tete de Moin, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This is meant to be eaten. I'm speaking with Mallory O'Donnell, who is a quote-unquote professional, maybe, forager um, based in New Jersey. And we were just talking about um, how the larger population of those who know about edible weeds are not uh, white people, but generally immigrants. Um, And so he brought up this really interesting point where a lot of Asian Americans are the ones in the know, the ones that are going to Central Park to to find the ginkgo nuts, to find these really delicious weeds, but also um, that's led to a lot of policing in these parks. And I heard from a friend that um, uh, that she got stopped for simply photographing a mushroom. And so why, can you talk a bit about this? And if these uh, plants are truly free for everyone to enjoy, why is there so much policing going on? Well, one thing I, I have discovered, in, and I'm from New Jersey, so there's a whole different set of laws there, is that, um, so I live on... Uh, in New Jersey, but close to the border with Pennsylvania. So the Delaware River forms the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. You go from one town and then 30 seconds across the bridge and you're in Pennsylvania. And the laws about foraging are completely different. In Pennsylvania, you're allowed to collect fruits, you're allowed to collect nuts, you're allowed to collect mushrooms for personal use. Um, and from state parks, from county parks, from city parks, etc. In New Jersey, there's none of that. It's verboten entirely. You're not permitted to damage any plant. You're not permitted to uproot anything. You're not, and in Pennsylvania, you're not allowed to uproot plants or take plants either. But you can take flowers, I think, uh, and fruits. But um, uh, 
And in the city, of course, you have a whole different set of laws and rules, and a lot of them are very different from park to park. Like I know Brooklyn Bridge Park, for instance, is very aggressive. Prospect Park, not so much, uh, perhaps because they have bigger fish to fry. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but they might want to clean up some of the other things that are going on there first. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, the idea of freedom is a nebulous and kind of tricky one. Uh, like, for instance, um, you know, there's the uh, fallen fruit maps. And those things, have you seen those? They're, Can you explain what that is? It's like basically an app or a, or a, it started as online uh, maps of like LA neighborhoods that where people have orange trees that are hanging over their walls and they drop oranges so you can go pick up some oranges. I have a bit of an issue with that. Like, I don't really think of this as free food. I think of it as food that comes with a responsibility. And an understanding of where it's coming from. Even if it's an ornamental plant that no one wants. If it's on their property, you should probably talk to them before you collect it. That's the best thing to do. You'll find nine times out of ten, they really don't care. I mean, most of the time they'll go, you can eat kusa dogwood fruit? <laughs> what? That's gross. Like, I would never do that. Ugh. You know? And, um, but, like, I don't really think of any of it as free, but the policing of parks is a whole different thing because it is essentially... What are we saying here? Are we saying that this is something that is being protected because we're trying to protect wildlife? Like, are we trying to protect, okay, you can't gather any acorns from the park because the squirrels need all of them. Well, I don't know about that. But I have been saying this for years, and I think in New Jersey it particularly caused a sense of frustration for me, is that there needs to be, there's, okay, you can entrust people to hunt animals, which ostensibly we seem to care about a lot more than plants and mushrooms. You can fish, which we also seem to care about more than plants and mushrooms. You can get a license to do these things. Why can't you have a license to forage? Why can't you have a license to collect plants and mushrooms and be trusted to do that responsibly like a hunter is trusted to do that responsibly when they get a hunting license? And, and many of them do. I mean, the majority of hunters are not you know, out there shooting every dang thing. They, they, they learn the ways that it's supposed to be done. And that's, if we keep this um, pursuit in the dark and we don't talk about it and we, and we view it as weird or somehow subversive or strange, we will never learn a dialogue and create a dialogue where we learn what's healthy to do with it, you know? And that's why we have people digging up the whole ramp patch when they find it because they just go oh well there's you know first of all what I'm doing is probably illegal second of all oh god quickly before anybody sees me I'm going to pick every damn ramp in the park or every maitake in the park or whatever um, I think the I almost almost want to advocate for m not more policing but more just some sense about this like a let's 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 treat it like a real thing and start to maybe go okay well well you know what, what should we do about this? Can we can we create a licensor? Can we create a a way to sort of uh, work with the government and make this sustainable and also viable and not have people? Um... The only person I really know that gets hounded consistently by state parks is Tim Pfizer in Alabama, uh, and he gets uh, he gets uh, he's posted a lot of pictures of himself with this. <laughs> The park police behind him, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny, but they usually steal sumac from him, which is, uh, you know, really hilarious because it's like the most abundant native 
you know, fruit or herb mm-hmm. or spice or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's something that you really like. It's very, would, it's very hard to make a case for that being a non-sustainable activity, collecting sumac fruits. I mean, in my area, the birds don't even eat them. So, um, and it's a perennial and, you know, everything else. But, um, but I know, I think in the city, you're looking at a bias in terms of the who gets policed in in the city parks and it's it's going to be largely immigrants and ethnic minorities who are getting you know attention their way because the that's number one that's who's doing it and number two that's you know i mean it's not a happy thing but it's the fact of the matter you know we we live in a state that prosecutes people based on what they look like mm-hmm. not what they're doing so <laughs> if if we were to follow through with the the increasing licensing um, or increasing the policing I, what i immediately thought of is uh, mugwort which we see everywhere and so if there were to be some regulations on that how would what do you think that would look like like well, you're only allowed to collect a certain amount but with stuff like that it's I mean, so much there's plant like mugwort it, it first of all you're not doing anything when you collect it because it's perennial Right. So it's just going to come back up. Even if you cut it, only thing you could do would be to rip out the roots. But it's also allopathic. It inhibits the growth of other things around it. And it's it spreads by rhizomes. So if you pull up a patch of mugwort by the roots, it's probably just going to come back in from the neighboring patch. Mm-hmm. Where I live, there are pure fields of mugwort. Like, I mean, you, you imagine in your mind a field of corn. Now imagine it's mugwort. <laughs> That's a lot... That happens a lot by me. You're never going to beat mugwort by foraging for it. I mean, especially not... It's a really a strong herb. It's not a... It's not something you can eat gallons of. Um, I don't think... I, I think the idea of a license... Uh, first of all, I'm not in favor of more policing, but I'd be in favor of the creation of a license. And the, you trust... Like, you know, there are people who are allowed to shoot bear in New Jersey. I don't really particularly agree with that. I don't think we have enough bears. There's very few of them, and our our big predators are really in danger all across the world. Um, you know, they're thought of as dangerous to human life, so they get killed more often than legally. Um, mugwort is a whole different story. It's an invasive, introduced plant. It's allopathic. It's non-native. It's it's everything pejorative you want to address to a plant. It could be you collect all the mugwort you want. But if you're given a, if you're gonna get a license to forage, I would think that sort of stuff. We don't need to micromanage it. Like, I think the idea would be to to allow people to that are maybe maybe just complete a simple test, just like you do for a hunting license, and you know you're trusted with the the, the knowledge that you know. Okay, I'm not gonna go out there and dig up ramps, but I might pick a lot of mugwort, you know, because that's obviously a plant that is fair game. There's a lot of stuff like that in the wild food world. I mean, a large percentage of what we can use and subsist on is an invasive plant, introduced plants from dandelions on up. Um, there are very few native plants that are really uh, heavy use items in the food wild food world. I mean, ramps would be probably the classic example. That's, you know, a, a good one. Uh, some of the wild fruits, but then a lot of those are also sort of, you know, most of our wild fruits in America, like black cherry and wild black cherry, I'm, I'm never going to be able to get to the black cherries that are 60 or 80 feet up. I mean, there's plenty for the birds, you know. Mm-hmm. I might pick a few off of some branches, but and most of them are, are like that. They're they're pretty, it's pretty innocent to collect them, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I want to go back to something you said um, a while ago, which was uh, collecting food from the grocery store versus going out into the woods and being kind of confused and maybe not as fruitful in your search. And so um, with food being so easy to identify and source from a grocery store, why the impetus to then go foraging? I think uh, the combination is the most exciting thing to me. Um, things that you grow are exceptional. Some ingredients that you buy from markets, especially really good markets, um, and there are starting to be more of them in America now, um, those can be really exciting too. I mean, I, I, when I go to a local farm and I buy something, I'm really excited. But when I go to H Mart and I see their fish and I see the, uh, you know, Yu Choi, I get really excited. I go, oh my God, I love this ingredient. Oh my God, I can't wait to get it home and cook with it. All those things are good. They can all be part and parcel of the same process and we can create our food from them. And But giving it a little bit of a wild twist is making it a little more sustainable. Now, the fear of wild plants is something that you have to overcome, but the only way to do that is to get out there and really look at things. That's why I always encourage people, you know, it's a long process. It's not maybe necessarily instant pleasure. Um, you you got to look at things. Uh, for instance, the carrot family, the wild carrot family, APACA, I always tell people, don't pick any wild carrot plant, period, until you've watched it go through an entire year. Because the chance of you picking the, 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 the pleasure you might get from wild chervil or, or wild carrot greens is great. But the chance of you picking hemlock instead and dying is not worth it. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, there are certain groups of plants and certain families of plants you got to be really careful with. The nightshades are another one. Um, the pea family's rife with hazard. But then there's some really safe ones. The mustard family, for instance, you can pretty much anything, once you've, you've learned to sort of identify the characteristics of it. Um, so that's why I sort of like, I like to steer people towards just a little bit of patience, just a little bit of, you know, take your time with it, you know, and, uh, and as far as like, how do you know, oh, how do you know something's not going to hurt you or do damage to you? It's like, go, look, go walk into the supermarket and pick a box off the shelf and tell me you can pronounce all the ingredients that are in there. When I eat a wild food, I know the Latin name. I know exactly what that thing is. I know 100%. And I don't allow for, there's no room for, for, for uncertainty about that. I mean, well, when, within certain families, you can kind of be a little bit like the mustard family. There's no toxic mustard family member. If you know you got a mustard family plant and you can tell because they all smell the same, you're okay. But that's a, a small exception. In general, you want to know 100% what you got. and. That's way more knowledge than you're ever going to have about a box of granola even or, or, you know, even something natural that you buy at the supermarket mm -hmm. is probably, yeah, it's probably loaded with all kinds of things that you don't really know the provenance of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I went on that walk with Sada, the, um, have you seen or read Into the Wild by John Krakauer? Oh, by Krakauer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every time I see, is this a potato flower? Yeah, Am yeah. I going to die? The big, the big fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so... But then um, there are a there's a big community of people that just don't have the time, don't 
just don't want to put in the work of then learning. Then they shouldn't collect wild food. Right. And so then they elect to pay for walks um, led by other foragers. And um, I've looked into these. And it's like you go into Prospect Park and in the middle there is a picnic blanket with mushrooms and wine. And we all have like a wild brunch. And so when you pay for an experience like that, who are you really supporting? Are you supporting the forager? Um, are you supporting like the wild food movement? Like what... What is stuff like that supposed to achieve? I mean, it's it's another example of sort of the class, what you brought up as the, the class issue, which is that, you know, I have, again, the, the time. I mean, you know, if you've got the time to watch every episode of Game of Thrones, you have the time to learn about wild plants. It probably would take you about the same amount of time to learn. Like the, the rudimentary basics of foraging is probably, you know, about as long as, you know, mainstreaming, you know, mainlining one Netflix show or whatever. Forthcoming I mean, Netflix yeah, documentary. It's, it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not really like, I mean, I have done this. This occupies a lot of my time and a lot of my life, but I'm going a lot further than most people would ever need to go. It's not, you don't have to go whole hog, but you can learn something about your world. I mean, this is the structure of our world. To me, the the architecture of cities and streets is an, a really recent introduction. Trees and plants have been here a lot longer. Mushrooms have been here a lot longer. That's the landscape to me. That's the um, that's our world. And the more I learn about it, the more I just become even more fascinated with it. And uh, I think if people dip a toe into it, um, they struggle with the Latin. That's definitely a thing. But that's also an important thing to learn. It's a, it's important to challenge yourself, and that's a, a way that you can you can challenge yourself. But I, I feel like there's so much pleasure in the learning about these things. And when you really know something, especially mushrooms are like that too, because they're so uh, foreign to our day to day experience. You know, we all have gardens pretty much, or we walk through a park, or you know, on our way to work or whatever. But mushrooms seem sort of like they're from another planet. When you start to understand them, you you realize, wow, they're really there's a lot of sense to the way they work, and and they they serve this amazing important role, and wow, you become fascinated with them. And I think we need a little more fascination in our world right now. I think we're really over a lot of stuff, and we're blasé about a lot of stuff. And I love the the world of the growing things because it it injects that fascination, but it also there's an element of sort of danger and. You know, you you go, wow, you know, this is important to know. If I mess around with this, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to be toast. That's not good. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, again, the the one thing I was like, I always have to say this every time I do any kind of interview or talk is the first thing you got to learn about, if you're new to this and you're interested and you're curious about this, the first thing I would say is just learn about what's poisonous and that grows in your area. That's the first thing to do. Learn about hemlock. Learn about uh, the destroying angel. I drove past uh, a bunch of lawns in my suburban neighborhood in New Jersey and the destroying angel, Amanita verosa in Europe. Uh, and we have a related species in North America. It's a white, phallic, ghost-like mushroom that grows most often on people's lawns. And it will kill you instantly. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not instantly, actually. It's very painful. But it, it, most place I've seen it the most is people's front yards and I drove past a ton of them you know thinking wow this is the kind of thing people really need to know about the toxic and dangerous things you know learn about them and and really read about them before you start to you know experiment um, 
because that's definitely a mistake. That's it's not worth making for food. That's definitely not it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I love food, but it's just not worth it. <laughs> so, what are you working on now, or what? Um, what? Yeah. What are your plans? Oh. Um, well, I'm working on a book. <gasps> on what? Uh, guess. Mushrooms? No, no, no. Okay. No, it's mostly plants. Uh, there's a little bit of mushrooms in there. Um, I've been working on it for a while now. Um, I'm hoping in the off-season this winter I can finish a rough draft. Um, I really love the wild food literature. I have every book probably that's been written about wild food pretty much over the past century I, I track down weird stuff on Amazon and everything like that but um, there's not something there's something that I don't see and that's what I want to put together which is a sort of um, like uh, I see a lot of these um, books that come from restaurants or books that come from home kitchens that are, you know, they're filled with really interesting recipes and really interesting ideas. And there's some basic stuff about identification and things like that. There's a lot of literature about identifying wild plants. And you need a lot of literature, especially if you're going to be self-taught like I was. You need a lot of literature. You need multiple sources. You need to be cross-referencing things, looking at websites, not trusting them because anybody can post a picture of anything on the internet and call it whatever it is. Um, you need guidebooks. You need Samuel Thayer's books. I mean, those are completely perfect for identifying plants and for understanding their edible uses and their general things. But I don't see a lot of like, there's not a lot of literature about how to make everyday food, simple food. That's it's, it's a, it's a lot of bourgeois kind of, you know, Mm. Oh, here's a restaurant type recipe. Here's a, a neat little cordial or, you know, whatever. And some of that stuff's really amazing. I mean, I've learned so much from, you know, those different books and, and I admire so many of their authors and so many of the recipes are fascinating, but I want something that's like, you know, Cucina Povera, like basic, real, raw, simple recipes, kind of like Joy of Cooking. Like, you know, when I first learned how to cook, that Joy of Cooking was like, I mean, my original copy of it looks like somebody ran it over with a truck. (laughs) You know, it's stained, it's in pieces, it's, you know, you have to, you know, half of it's upside down, you know. And you need something like that, something, I want to create something that gives you uh, real broad, basic, general recipes. So that's my focus right now is to distill sort of my rudimentary knowledge, (laughs) which I think is still on the beginning of of my journey. I, I feel like I'm still at the start of it, you know? Um, but I figured out enough things that I can say, well, here's about 50 ways you can use a dandelion. Um, and that's sort of what's more important to me, not talking about morels and, you know, truffles and esoteric, uh, funky and things like that, but real basic foodstuffs. Um, cause I think, you know, it's like we were talking about before, like it's in the hands of the working class people, the poor people, those are the people that have this knowledge. And, that, and some of them are, are losing the knowledge. And I'm not really interested in telling them how to ID plants. I think there's enough of that out there. But I'd like to put out something that really gets people going with. It's like once you figured out what something is, you come home, you crack this open, and you go, all right, this guy's got like 25 different ways I could use this. Like, what can I do with it? You know, mm-hmm. um, like a basics. 
you know. Um, so I'm really excited about that project. I've been working on it for a while, and I've been trying not to like push it. You know what I mean? Been trying to sort of. Uh, Knock on wood. Refine. Yeah, yeah refine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I don't want to, you know, I'm hoping I can let it go, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I want to make sure that it's not, you know, um, I'm not letting it go too soon. I want to, I want to really focus on getting the most information in there and uh, making it accessible to a lot of people because not a lot of what what's out there doesn't strike me as being particularly appealing for your average person who probably doesn't have a lot of time in the day you know uh like you said i mean you know it is a time thing you know we fill our lives with all these things we come home it's like now i'm not going to tell you how to identify stuff because that's going to be somebody else's job so many people have done that job so well but i'll tell you what to do with it thank you so much for joining me today mallory thank you for having me meant to beat and we'll be back next week Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.